1: his heart is in the right place but his words are far from right and he comes to Jesus Jesus that's not who you are that's not what you're going to do you're not going to have to suffer you're not going to have to die you're our deliverer you're the one who's going to rescue us redeem us you're going to set us free as a people that's who you are there's no suffering in your future and Jesus says I need to stop you right there Because you're trying to distract me from what God's purpose is in my life, what God's will is for me. And I need to fulfill his purpose. I don't need to hear you right now. Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of what God wants to do. You're not mindful of my purpose. You're not mindful of God's will. You're seeking after the things of man. And again, I wonder if this wouldn't be us. If we were in the presence of Jesus today, I think we would be rebuked just like Peter. Why? Because we come selfishly to the Lord for things that we want and we desire. We're not mindful of the things of the kingdom. We're so focused on ourselves, even in our own prayer lives. Not Jesus. See, Jesus put his money where his mouth was. When his disciples came to him and said, Jesus, will you teach us to pray? What did he say? He said, this is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What? Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do you pray? You pray, Lord, accomplish your will on this earth. Accomplish it through me if you need to. That's how you pray. And again, we don't have this same heart. We don't have this same mindset. Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's struggling with the wrath of God that's going to be poured out upon him. And he prays, please, Lord, if there's some other way. But what does he tag that with? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I surrender to your will. And I think sometimes we want to say that we're doing a pretty good job with this. We want to believe that we're really truly surrendered and abandoned to the will of God like Jesus was here to the purpose of God like Jesus was here. But if we're truthful and if we're honest, there are things that we hold back because we say, "Lord, your will be accomplished in my life as long as I'm not going to be sick. As long as I'm not going to be broke. As long as I don't have to suffer. As long as I don't have to see my children in pain." Lord, your will be done in my life, but I'm going to keep these things, and these things I'll figure out. Your will be done in my life, but don't make me suffer. That's not the way Jesus prayed. That's not the way Jesus lived his life. And if you really, truly want to find fulfillment, contentment in your life, it's going to bring you to a place of brokenness where you say, Lord, it doesn't matter what you do in this life. It doesn't matter what happens in this flesh. Why? Because I know that something better is coming. And my hope isn't here. My hope is there. Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said this, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Talk about suffering. Jesus says, if you're not willing to suffer with me, then you're not worthy of me. But he goes on and he says this, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When you just come to that place in your life where you really truly surrender to the purpose and the will of God like Jesus did, Lord, I know that your plan for me is to suffer on a cross, but it's okay. Why? Because that I, I know that when I'm suffering on that cross, you're gonna draw people into my presence. It's worth it, Lord. In the end, your will is worth my suffering. This is Jesus' heart. He had a purpose. His eyes were fixed, he was intent, he was concentrating, he was fixated upon making it to Jerusalem on this very day. So the first thing you see there, he's a man of purpose. Secondly, I want you to see from this text is he's a man of prophecy. And what I mean by that is he's a man who comes to fulfill God's prophetic word. Look at what this says here, verse 2. So he comes to Jerusalem He says to his disciples, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill. What was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This fulfills God's word. Now, I love that Jesus says, if they ask you why you're bringing or loosing their donkey, why you're borrowing their donkey, just tell them that the Lord has need of it. Okay? First point of contention there is understand some people say Jesus never claimed to be Lord. He does right here. You tell them the Lord needs the donkey. Now, it amazes me that God would say he even needs a donkey, right? But it gives me hope at the same time. Because if God wants to and needs to use a donkey in order to fulfill his word, in order to fulfill his purpose, then maybe, just maybe I can be used. Maybe just maybe you can be used. If a donkey is a part of God's plan in order to fulfill his word, maybe just maybe God might be able to use you. I don't care where you came from or what your old life was like or what your education experience or whether or not you're good speaking in front of people. God wants to use you to accomplish his purposes. God even uses the donkey right? So the Lord has need of it. And now it says this was done to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. And understand this, during these days, the the Jewish believers, they didn't have a Bible like you and I have. They didn't have a Bible that had chapters and verses. They couldn't say, I need you now to turn to Isaiah chapter 62 and to Zechariah chapter 9. They couldn't do that. So just like Jesus did. You remember Jesus is hanging on a cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he doing there? Even on a cross, Jesus, the traveling Jewish rabbi, is telling those who are watching, he says, turn to Psalm 22. It's going to tell you this was supposed to happen. He's referencing a scripture. In the same sense, this is what's happening here. Okay, Matthew here is teaching us The same way he's saying, look, I don't have a chapter and verse to give you, but this is to fulfill what was spoken by these prophets. Now today we can turn to Isaiah chapter 62 and we can turn to Zechariah chapter 9. They're going to be on the screen for you in just a moment. But understand this, Jesus knew what the Bible said about the Messiah, about his coming. And Jesus was intent on fulfilling God's word. Jesus said this, I didn't come to abolish the Torah, I came to what? To fulfill the Torah. The scripture says this in in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Behold, in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus came to fulfill the scripture, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. The first one of these that he fulfills is written 700 years before his coming. Okay, this is in Isaiah chapter 62. Listen to what it says here. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, say to Jerusalem, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Behold, your salvation comes. Okay, now the word salvation in Hebrew is yesha. Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua. Literally, what's going on here, okay, did you see what Matthew wrote? Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Behold, your salvation is coming to you. Behold, your Jesus is coming to you. Isaiah, 700 years before the time of Christ, actually gives us the name of the Messiah. Yeshua is coming. Jesus is coming is coming okay that's the first one now look at the second verse Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 this was written 500 years before Jesus came and this is what the prophet Zechariah says rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion sing or shout aloud O daughter of Jerusalem behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation he is humble mounted on a donkey on a colt the full of a donkey exactly what happens Jesus fulfills this to a T He comes riding on this donkey. He comes humbly. Now, I don't think that there was ever a more humble man to walk on the face of the earth. And again, being totally and completely candid with you, maybe I say this often, but every single day, how many days? Every single day, I pray that the Lord would help me be humble. Why? Because I don't want my heart to be overtaken by pride. Because a prideful man is a man that God cannot use. A humble man is a man that God can use. Jesus came humbly. Was there ever a more humble man? He was born in a manger, in a feeding trough, in a barn, amongst barnyard animals. Right? He lived life very humbly. He was a carpenter just working an everyday trade. He didn't demand attention. He didn't demand people look to him or worship him. He was humble, and he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday the same way with that same humility on the back of a donkey. Now, it's important here. Your third point is that we see Jesus as a man of peace, See, there's a contrast that takes place here. When a king was going to war, a king would not ride a donkey. That would be an, a hilarious picture, right? Have you ever seen those old paintings of like Napoleon Bonaparte and he's on a stallion and he's got his, his sword out and like the stallion is rearing its legs and it looks very strong and powerful. Now, can you imagine one of those portraits with a king seated upon a donkey, right? It doesn't fit. See, in these days, when a king rode into war, he rode into war on a stallion. When a conquering king rode into war, he rode on a stallion. When he returned, he often returned with stallions pulling a golden chariot. This is the way the Roman emperors would conquer. And they would have a train, a parade of those who had been captured behind them, stripped down, completely naked, completely vulnerable, completely exposed. And behind them would be the Roman army. They would be marching. And you can almost hear their chatter right in full march their shields glistening in the sun there they were everyone watching this procession everyone watching this parade look at what the king has done look at our king has led us into battle and he has returned victorious and it's this huge coronation this huge parade that's not the way jesus arrives he arrives humbly on the back of a donkey you see when a king was conceding or when he was on a mission of peace, he would ride into the neighboring villages or in the neighboring countries or on the back of a donkey. It meant, look, this guy isn't coming to fight. This guy is coming to make peace. I want you to understand this today, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a mission of peace. Look at what happens. Look at here, verse 6. The disciples Went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. They put on them their cloaks. So they kind of draped the donkey with their jackets, with their outer garments. And he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. It's like a red carpet treatment. Okay, So the people people believe that there's something different about Jesus. They know. They've heard stories. They've seen the healings. It's gone throughout the regions. People understand that something different about Jesus... Okay, so they're preparing this arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem. He's on a donkey. He's declaring peace, but they're spreading out their clothes on the road like the red carpet treatment. Look at read on with me. Others cut branches from trees. In John chapter twelve, we know that these to be palm branches. That's why this is called Palm Sunday, and they would wave these branches in the air, and we're going to see why in just a second. And they spread on them, th- they spread them on the road, and so the road is spread with the outer garments of people with palm branches, and people are waving palm branches in the air, shouting and singing and worshiping. This is what's happening in this time and in this season now why palm branches See, understand that this was something that only the jewish listener the jewish mind would understand and then the years before jesus there's 400 years in which the bible is silent at the end of malachi to the new testament 400 years in which we don't have a religious text in our bible we call them the intertestamental period And in that intertestamental period, things still happened. You understand history still took place, right? It might not be canonized in scripture, but the world went on during those 400 years. It wasn't like there was no activity. And so during those 400 years, the Syrians had captured Jerusalem. And the people were being oppressed. And there was a wicked general by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And this guy wanted to eradicate the Jewish identity. So, how did he do that? He went throughout the regions of Israel, especially throughout the regions of Jerusalem, and he outlawed the worship of monotheistic gods. You can't worship just one god, you have to worship the pantheon of Greek gods. And he went into the temple and he erected a, a monument or an altar to Zeus and he sacrificed pigs upon that altar and he outlawed worship on the Sabbath and he outlawed the covenant, the sign of circumcision. Again, trying to rob the people of their Jewish identity. To to assimilate them into the Syrian culture. Are you following with me? Now, during this time, again, this is the years 175 B.C. to around 164 B.C., during this time, there was a man by the name of Matthias Maccabees. You can read about this, actually, in some of the apocryphal texts. But there was a man by the name of Matthias Maccabees, and he led a charge against the oppressive Syrian general Antiochus Epiphanes. So they sent an emissary to Matthias's town, about 12 miles outside of Jerusalem. And they set up a portable altar. And they pulled Matthias out, who was one of the elders of the village. And he said, listen, your village can be spared if you will sacrifice this pig, this swine, on this altar to Zeus. Okay, now understand again for a jewish man to touch the swine to touch the pig it was unclean shouldn't do that right matthias refuses and so one of the other elders steps forward and grabs the knife and raises it and is going to sacrifice the swine in order to spare the village from oppression when matthias sees what's happening he takes the knife And he slays the other elder, and he slays the general's emissaries. And then he shouts to the city, whoever is for God, follow me. And this begins a guerrilla warfare style engagement between the Syrians and these Jews that are in rebellion to this oppressive regime. You follow me so far? In the year 164 B.C., By this time, Matthias is off the scene. His son, Judas Maccabees, has taken over, and they storm Jerusalem. They push back the Syrians, and they take back the city. And spontaneously, as a result of this capturing of the city, the Jews cut palm branches, and they wave palm branches in the air in celebration of this amazing victory. They've gotten back their city. They've taken back the temple. So what does this mean for what we're looking at here? This is what the people are saying. They're waving palm branches, Jesus coming into Jerusalem on this donkey. Do you know what they're asking for? Do you know what they're inviting Jesus to do? They're saying, Jesus, will you deliver us nationally and politically and economically just like the Maccabees did? Will you do that for us now? And so they're waving the palm branches in anticipation saying, Jesus, come deliver us. Jesus, come rescue us from this Roman oppression. Jesus, come set us free. Help us to become the nation that God intended us to become once more. What they didn't understand, again, just like Peter, maybe just like you, their minds were set on earthly things. They weren't set on things of the kingdom. And Jesus was not riding into Jerusalem on that day to deliver them politically or nationally or economically. He was riding into Jerusalem on that day to deliver and set them free spiritually. I worry because I look around at America today, and we've got this same mindset, don't we? We wave the palm branches, and we say, Jesus, come conquer politically, and come conquer nationally, and deliver us economically, and we aren't thinking spiritually. What good is it if our political candidate is there if people are dying in their sin? There is no purpose to that, right? we're not thinking of the kingdom matters we're thinking of the earthly matters our minds have been distracted the church's mind has been distracted and again these people they know something different about jesus they recognize that he could be the one and they're waving these branches they're inviting him to come and lead us into battle and we as a church we do the same thing jesus would say this and he would quote a text out of isaiah in luke chapter 4 and he says listen i am come to set at liberty the captives to set people free, to proclaim this is the acceptable year of the Lord. I've come to do this. And then he puts the scroll down. He sits down and he says, today, this text has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is why I'm here today. But again, it wasn't a physical deliverance. It was a spiritual deliverance. I wonder how many of us are desiring more for a physical deliverance. Lord, heal me. Lord, provide for me again, like, you can see the parallelisms with our culture today. You think it's by chance, right, that prayer has been kicked out of schools, that our borders are going to be wide open, right? The whole idea of the global agenda is to erase our national identity so that we would no longer remember where we've come from, the roots of who we are as a nation. Let's take Prayer out of schools. Let's make it really difficult for people to worship. Let's make it hard for them to gather together. Let's put a ceiling, a 25% cap on them. And that's only because the Supreme Court won't let us do worse. Right? And so they're trying to erase our identity as the church. Don't let them pray. Don't let them worship. Don't let them sing songs. Don't let them read scripture publicly. Don't let them pray over one another, right? Taking our identity, taking our identity, robbing us of these things, and if we're not careful, our response is going to be a fleshly response, just like the people of Israel when Jesus came to Jerusalem. They say, come and deliver us politically. Deliver us from this oppressive regime. Help us to be set free from these people that are watching. No, we still need to be crying out for spiritual deliverance. God, set your people free from sin. God, set this nation free from sin. We've been distracted. Jesus comes to set free spiritually, and it's of so much more importance than any other possible kind or or form of deliverance. He comes on this mission of peace, and, and there's a purpose for this, right? It's because you are by nature children of wrath. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you needed to be reconciled to God. So Jesus comes and by the blood of the cross, he reconciles you to the Father. Right? He comes on this mission of peace to make us one with God again. To say, oh, no more war, no more fighting between man and God. Let's become one. Let's bring these sides together once more. That's what Jesus does when he rides in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Fourthly, if you're taking notes there... We want to see that Jesus is a man of praise. And there is no other name that is worthy of our praise but the name of Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen? Amen. So we see here in this text that they're waving palm branches. They've laid out the red carpet treatment. Their cloaks are on the road. The branches are on the road. He's riding into Jerusalem on this donkey. And the people are shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the word Hosanna means liberate us. Deliver us. Set us free. This was the cry on the people's lips. Again, they're crying out for deliverance, but they're crying out for the wrong kind of deliverance. Did Jesus come to deliver that day? Absolutely. But he came to deliver as us discussed spiritually, not physically. Now, look at this text because, again, this is a fulfillment of prophetic scripture, and Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 are called the Hallel in the Hebrew. The word means praise, and this is one of the first texts that a Jewish person would memorize. This text is recited on all of the celebratory feasts that the Jewish people would participate in, and this particular thing that they're shouting has messianic undertones and the jewish rabbis the jewish religious leaders the scribes and the pharisees they would have understand what this meant they hear the people shouting out hosanna deliver us be the moses to set us free from egypt set us free from this bondage they would have recognized these as messianic undertones or overtones and it would have really caused a problem in them so look at what it's quoting here psalm 118 says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray. Hosanna, literally, O oh Lord. O oh Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Once more, they're crying out for a warrior to come and to deliver them. But they've got it all wrong. Yes, a warrior has arrived on the scene, but he's not there to fight Rome. He's there to fight the devil. And he's going to win, isn't he? If you will cry out to the Lord today with the sincerity in your heart, if you will shout out, Hosanna, Hosanna, come and rescue me. Come deliver me. Set me free, not from physical bondage. Set me free from the spiritual bondage. Set me free from sin. Liberate me. Loose the chains that have me bound. I can't enjoy the presence of the Lord. There's no joy. There's no peace. There's no contentment in my life because I'm struck by sin. If you'll cry out today, Hosanna, God will deliver you today.